It's a funny place to be, stuck in a seemingly mundane world with an inner knowing that the universe is so much more than our mortal minds can comprehend. Yet we all have the capacity to know peace and our oneness with the wholeness of life. And through these interviews, discussions, and reflections, it is my intention to share this possibility. I'm Ryan Kurzak, and this is the Kriya Yoga Podcast. Kriya Yoga. What exactly is the science of Kriya Yoga? What does it mean to practice Kriya Yoga? We can begin by exploring how Yogananda discusses what Kriya Yoga is in his book Autobiography of a Yogi in chapter 26. The chapter is entitled The Science of Kriya Yoga. And he begins by saying that Kriya is a Sanskrit word whose root is Kri, which means to do, to act, or to react. And the same root is found in the word karma, which deals with the natural principle of cause and effect. So Kriya Yoga is essentially union, yoga means union, to yoke union, with the infinite through an action or an activity. So essentially any activity that we perform which allows us to identify or realize ourselves as the eternal infinite letting go of attachment with the personality, the mind, the body, the small sense of self, that is the practice of Kriya Yoga. Now, we must always remember that when we discuss letting go of attachment with the mind, body, and personality, or the ego, it doesn't mean that it still doesn't function, that we are not able to uh, see those parts of our being in their proper place in life. Um, Most of the suffering that we endure from a spiritual perspective is from being overly identified with that which will change or eventually fade away. And that fundamental aspect of ourselves that isn't going to last forever, that we are so fixated and identified with, usually relates to the mind-body personality. So the Kriya Yogi is able to relate to the world appropriately through the mind-body personality, life situations, but the Kriya Yogi does not necessarily define oneself through um, those things. And so hopefully they save themselves a lot of pain in the long run. Now, Kriya Yoga, as you probably think of it, typically relates to a set of meditation techniques where you learn to bring your awareness to the spine and to either through experience or through imagination, learn to circulate your attention or life force through the spine. And by doing that, that activity helps to draw us within to give us a direct experience of what we are as this eternal, infinite, witnessing, present self, this eternal consciousness. And so as Yogananda states, the yogi who faithfully follows the techniques is gradually freed from karma or the universal chain of causation. Now, Usually, you're not going to find the practices of Kriya Yoga um, spelled out exactly uh, in texts or in very simple seminars um, 
And that's primarily because the practice of Kriya Yoga, while there is a fundamental principle, fundamental meditation procedure that underlies uh, what we know Kriya Yoga to be, it is very individualized. Everyone's temperament is going to be different. So to learn Kriya Yoga well, it is often recommended that one finds a teacher who already knows how to practice the techniques and already has some experience with them. I find it fascinating that in um, the current editions of Autobiography of the Yogi, put out by Self-Realization Fellowship, it reads, The actual technique should be learned from an authorized Kriyaban, or Kriya Yogi, of Self-Realization Fellowship. Uh, here, a broad reference must suffice, uh, but from what I understand, Yogananda um, did not necessarily copyright these works, and so it is available to the public, and if I have the correct version in front of me here, the original read, um, because of certain ancient yoga conjunctions, I cannot give a full explanation of Kriya Yoga in the pages of a book intended for the general public. The actual technique must be learned from a Kriyaban, or Kriya Yogi. Here, a broad reference must suffice. So there's no emphasis towards uh, any particular organization. It's simply someone who knows how to practice Kriya Yoga. And if I recall, there's also a statement in one of um, Lahiri Mahasaya's writings where he said the duty of a Kriya Yogi essentially is to meditate well, to meditate to the state of um, clarity and tranquility. That is the duty of the Kriya Yogi. And beyond that, the duty is also to initiate others into Kriya Yoga. Of course, it's assumed that the one who is going to be doing the initiating already has some skills with the practice and has already experienced the deeper benefits of the process. But Yogananda goes on to describe that Kriya Yoga is a psychophysiological method. A psychophysiological method. He describes it as something that decarbonizes the blood and recharges it with oxygen, and that these extra oxygen atoms are turned into uh, life trons, which re rejuvenates the brain and the spinal centers. And that this, uh, he says, by stopping the accumulation of venous blood, the yogi is able to lessen or prevent the decay of tissues. The advanced yogi transmutes his cells into pure energy. Elijah, Jesus, Kabir, and other prophets were past masters in the use of Kriya or a similar technique by which they caused their bodies to dematerialize at will. So uh, possibly that happens. I don't know what science has to say about that. Uh, but it is true, certainly, that it is a psychophysiological method. Because as we know at this point in time, the way meditation functions, breathing deeply, bringing awareness to certain uh, brain centers, that this does tend to refine the nervous system. By deep breathing, we learn to activate those aspects of our nervous system, which are more inclined to peacefulness, resting, and rejuvenating. So there's something to all of this, but we have to remember that um, Yogananda was writing this text in um, the early part of the 1900s. So he was doing his best to describe the way he knew that this practice functioned. Now, Kriya is an ancient science. And just to be clear, we want to discuss what we mean by the term science. Uh, 
Uh, we can think of science as we have it today, where we have test tubes and labs and people hooked up to various things and papers being written and uh, filling up periodicals and journals with our findings. The idea of science from this perspective uh, ideally should be similar in the sense that it is following hopefully a scientific method. And by that, we're really aiming for something repeatable. And so when Kriya yogis or Kriya teachers discuss Kriya as a science, essentially what they are describing is that uh, if one is able to repeat the process that they have been taught, then they will have the repeatable experience of having their awareness freed, of having the um, sense of self freed of the identification with the mind, the body, the changeable aspects of life, and able to identify with that which is eternal. And this has been passed on for centuries, uh, almost about two centuries now in our current time, but it stated that this Kriya was originally taught uh, previously. This ancient science was given uh, from Krishna to Arjuna a millennium ago, and it was taught to Patanjali. Uh, Yogananda even goes on to say that Christ, St. John, St. Paul, and other disciples practiced this. Now, I don't know about that, but we do have to keep in mind that the practice of meditation itself has a fundamental process to it. Whether we use these specific Kriya Yoga techniques, the Kriya Pranayama, the breathing through the spine, chanting through the chakras, whether we use those or whether we find some other method to hold our awareness steady to the exclusion of all else such that we can turn our awareness within Meditation all follows the same kind of mechanical process. So we need to keep in mind, uh, and I was just asked this question recently at a talk I was giving at a local yoga studio. Essentially, what, why do we call it Kriya Yoga? What makes it different than other kind of yogas or other kind of meditation procedures? And my answer was basically marketing and branding. Uh, the Yoga Sutras are a prime Kriya Yoga text, but the Yoga Sutras are not simply Kriya Yoga related. There are other branches of uh, other meditation schools that can use those texts, other yogic schools that utilize the text of Patanjali. But when Yogananda came to America, uh, the goal was to name it such that people would recognize, okay, when we're talking about this teaching that Yogananda promotes and is sharing with the world and is bringing to the world, well, we'll call it Kriya Yoga. And again, you've heard me say this before. When Yogananda was leaving India, uh, Sri Yukteswar saw him off, and Sri Yukteswar specifically told Yogananda to teach Kriya from the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. So again, we must remember that any action which serves to unite our awareness with the true essence of our being, any action that does that is a Kriya. Because of how this practice developed in the West, we tend to associate this idea of Kriya Yoga with a particular meditation practice, and we also tend to associate it with a particular lineage. And we remember that while Yogananda was the student of Sri Yukteswar, well, Sri Yukteswar had other students. 
And while Shrikteshwar was the student of Lahiri Mahasaya, Lahiri Mahasaya also had other students, just like Yogananda. Um, some of his most well-known students, Roy Eugene Davis, Oliver Black, Donald Walters, um, they also carried on this tradition as well. So when we discuss Kriya Yoga, there's a lot to consider there. But overall, what we're focusing on from our perspective is a particular method of breathing and meditation through the lineage related to Mahavatar Babaji, Lahiri Mahasaya, Swami Sri Yukteswar, Paramahansa Yogananda, Roy Eugene Davis, and their successors. Now, in the Bhagavad Gita, Kriya Yoga is referred, is spoken of by Krishna. And in the Bhagavad Gita, it is stated that offering the inhaling breath to the outgoing breath, and offering the outgoing breath into the inhaling breath, the yogi neutralizes both of these breaths. He thus releases the life force from the heart and brings it under his control. So the interpretation that Yogananda gives to this is that the yogi arrests decay in the body by an addition of life force and arrests the mutations of growth in the body by the eliminating current, thus neutralizing decay and growth. By quieting the heart, the yogi learns life control. Now, we see here that Kriya Yoga is spoken of in the Bhagavad Gita. We also already know that Kriya Yoga is spoken of in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, which is why in the previous a previous podcast, the top four books on Kriya Yoga included a study of the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali and also uh, the Bhagavad Gita. In the Yoga Sutras, it is said that Kriya Yoga consists of bodily discipline, mental control, and meditate on Om. Patanjali speaks of God as the actual cosmic sound of Om heard in meditation. And we will be discussing this more uh, within this podcast. Om is the creative word, the sound of the vibratory motor. And this again is Yogananda's words from his autobiography of a yogi. Even the yoga beginner soon inwardly hears the wondrous sound of Om. Receiving this blissful spiritual encouragement, the devotee becomes assured that he is in actual touch with divine realms. Now, I do make a, I do put a lot of emphasis on learning to hear this Om vibration when I teach Kriya Yoga. It is spoken of quite a bit in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali as being very important. Um, my own personal experience has been that once we're able to quiet down the nervous system, settle into the body, and remaining alert yet relaxed, if we are able to flow our awareness to the Om vibration and hold it there, my personal experience has been that it is quite an enjoyable, delightful experience. Even if there is no profound meditation experience from that, even the act of trying, I have found, tends to relate to a lighter experience throughout the rest of my daily life. When we talked about the top four books on Kriya Yoga, I also mentioned The Holy Science by Sri Yukteswar, and he speaks to this as well. 
that ohm vibration, learning to tune oneself to that ohm vibration, one begins to, in a sense, experience a baptism and a rebirth. Now again, you need to learn this from someone who knows how to hear it, and you need to practice, because it's not easy. It's a, it's not an easy thing for people to experience or to hear. Um, every now and then, you get an individual who is able to almost immediately hear that own vibration. But when you begin to first hear it, it almost sounds like static electricity in your ears or uh, tinnitus. But by resting your awareness there at the exclusion of all else, one tends to start to um, feel pulled towards deeper meditations. Uh, it is said in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali that by contemplating the Om vibration, all obstacles are removed. Now, many people interpret that materialistically because that's the mindset of many people. But the obstacles that are removed are the obstacles to realizing the truth of one's own nature. And this is why in Yogananda's typically flowery words says, receiving this blissful spiritual encouragement, the devotee becomes assured that he is in actual touch with divine realms, that he is in actual touch with divine realms. Now it's spoken of a second time in Patanjali's work about life control. Liberation can be accomplished by pranayama, which is attained by disjoining the course of inspiration and expiration. Now these are um, Yogananda's uh, translations of the Yoga Sutras. Roy Eugene Davis's translation of the Yoga Sutras. Uh, I don't happen to have a copy of mine here, or I'd read from it. <laughs> I do have Roy's. Um, Roy says that the intentional regulation of sensory and mental impulses, self-analysis, profound metaphysical study and meditation, and surrendering self-consciousness or egoism in favor of God-consciousness are the practical means of attaining perfect concentration. This is the path of Kriya Yoga. Let me read that again. Intentional regulation of sensory and mental impulses, self-analysis, profound metaphysical study and meditation, and surrendering self-consciousness or egoism in favor of God-consciousness are the practical means of attaining perfect concentration. This is the path of Kriya Yoga. So you can see that where we began with this idea of Kriya Yoga as a specific set of pranayama procedures, the Kriya Pranayama in particular, it's actually much more than that. And it's it's something that takes a lot of attention, commitment, and um, essentially one has to live one's whole life as a Kriya Yogi in order to get the full benefits of it. So we have to be cautious of people or books or situations that tend to make you think the only thing you need to do to practice Kriya Yoga is to breathe a certain way or to only practice meditation. The Yoga Sutras of Patanjali go on to describe the eight limbs of yoga, which are also the process of Kriya Yoga. Yama, Nyama, Asana, Pranayama, Pratyahara, Jhana, and so on, up to Samadhi. All those are the practices of Kriya Yoga, and they all build upon themselves. 
So if you are intent upon practicing Kriya Yoga, definitely learn the techniques. You can find a teacher to share those with you. Uh, I'm sure if you did a little search, you can find numerous individuals willing to share that. Um, it is available to you through videos, through books. You can learn those techniques and you can begin practicing those techniques. But to get the full benefit, I highly recommend studying the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali or studying with a teacher who can help you understand the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. I highly recommend um, studying the Bhagavad Gita, going beyond the Bhagavad Gita as a story of a war and seeing it for the allegory for which it is uh, related to what should one expect as one steps upon the spiritual path. What kind of work does one want to do? Uh, in a previous podcast, I discussed how I have a plan to begin a commentary on the Bhagavad Gita, since I've already done a commentary on the Yoga Sutras in the book Kriya Yoga, Continuing the Lineage of Enlightenment. And it was fascinating because I've read the Bhagavad Gita more times than I can count. I've taught it uh, in lengthy programs to individuals learning Kriya Yoga, and as I go to type out the translations of it, I, I was struck by the first chapter, the despondency of Arjuna, because oftentimes we all start our spiritual practice in a state of longing, desire, or despondency. And it was interesting, as, as it begins, uh, the, the meditator, or Arjuna, as he is the representation of the one wanting to meditate and be a Kriya Yogi, he sees that he has a, a fight ahead of him, a war that he has to participate in. And then when Krishna, or Supreme Consciousness, that which Arjuna is going to realize, um, comes into play, Arjuna directs him to, to take him, because Krishna is the charioteer, in between the two armies. And Arjuna becomes overwhelmed with the task ahead of him. And he goes on and on talking about why this is a bad idea, why we can't do it, um, the misfortune that's going to befall everyone. And I, didn't, I never really recognized it until I started typing it out. But it's just like how we are when we begin our spiritual practices. We come up with one excuse after another. And I'm sure that our spiritual teachers are just rolling their eyes um, as they listen to the student go on and on about how they can't do this, they can't do that, this is too hard. So... You might also find that it could be helpful for you on your own spiritual path. Uh, you don't have to go write commentaries on the Yoga Sutras of the Bhagavad Gita, but you might find it useful to, to do so. Just try to figure it out in your mind. Type it out. Of course, learn from a reputable source first. Um, even just simply writing out the Yoga Sutras without writing any commentary or writing out the verses within the Bhagavad Gita I've found that when I do that, that tends to make it, um, it, it brings it more fully into my consciousness. I remember many, many, many years ago, when I first started learning Kriya Yoga, there was a book that I got of my teacher, Roy Davis's, that was out of print. And I thought, well, this is a good book. Maybe they would want it in print again. So I thought I would, I would just type it all out for them. So I took this 250-page book, and I sat it down in front of my computer. And after I got done meditating every day, I would go spend some time, word for word, typing out what uh, Mr. Davis had written. Now, 
I never republished that book, but I found that by going through that process on my own, it helped to internalize what I learned from that book. It made it more real. And I can remember when I first began trying to write, because I don't just write about spiritual things, I've also tried my hand at some science fiction and fantasy, although it never got past the manuscript stage. Um, I remember reading about how to write. And one of the things, one of the exercises that was advised to learn to be a better writer was to take one of your favorite books, sit down, and actually retype the entire book. It's interesting. So that's a little bit of an aside, but you might find that doing something like that helps you learn and understand um, your spiritual practice, your spiritual path a little bit better. Now again, back to the ideas of Kriya Yoga. Um, you know, Yogananda, he makes a, a lot of emphasis, or puts a lot of emphasis towards uh, how various Christian mystics or Christian saints also practice Kriya Yoga. And he talks about St. Paul, and he says how St. Paul knew Kriya Yoga. Um, that We knew this because St. Paul said, Verily, I protest by our rejoicing, which I have in Christ, I die daily. By daily withdrawing bodily life force, it said that St. Paul united, united in yoga with the eternal bliss of the Christ consciousness. And so the Christ consciousness is that eternal aspect of ourselves, again, beyond the mind-body personality. So essentially what we're learning to do through Kriya Yoga practice is to withdraw our awareness within, to let go of everything that is seemingly changeable, and abiding in that inner silence to see what we truly are. Anything that we do that allows us to die daily in that way wakes us up to self-realization or God consciousness or Christ consciousness. And these are not things which are miraculously far away. They are right here with us. All we need to do is learn to recognize it. And we learn to recognize it by meditating regularly. When we meditate regularly, we, we withdraw our awareness. And if we're me meditating well, we are withdrawing our awareness in such a way that for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour a day, we are aware of nothing else other than, say, our meditation technique, or we are aware of nothing else than the stillness that results after we practice a meditation technique. That trains us to see we are okay and can exist free from identifying with everything that we think is so important. This is what saints and sages know all the time. When we practice the yamas and the niyamas, those very first steps in yoga, which are necessary to give our time and attention to, we are also starting to train ourselves to see that we are not dependent on certain ideas of what our personality thinks is so important. Many people's personalities are so strong that they lie continuously just to keep a certain image of themselves in place. They're difficult to handle because you never know what's true with them. But the yogi who is practicing satya or truth, in a sense, is training oneself to not be attached to maintaining a particular kind of personality or point of view because they're more, they're more focused on truthfulness, the eternal truth. 
when one practices truthfulness, then they also learn to recognize what is truth, which is why then they can read various spiritual texts and see what the meaning of it is. Or they eventually learn to read various spiritual texts by all kinds of different teachers and see what is actually true within those statements. When Roy Eugene Davis first met Yogananda, Yogananda gave him some information and gave him some uh, rules to follow. And one of those rules was to only read uh, Paramahansa Yogananda's books for the first year or so of his training. And many people get ruffled by that because they'll think, oh, well, he's just trying to control people. Well, you can think of it that way if you want, but usually if you're thinking like that, it probably means that you like to control people and so you're projecting. That might be how you do it. But um, when you learn to see the truth in one series of texts or one series of teachings, and you really bring it home, and you really learn to embody it and, and recognize and see what it's all about, then essentially you can read anything you want, and you can pick out the fluff from what is important. So these yamas and these niyamas, non-possessiveness is another one, if you are not caught up in possessing things or defining yourself through possessions, well, again, you are letting go of attachment to that false sense of self, that personality, which essentially is a fiction. Sure, you're going to relate to the world through a personality. Um, I do that too. I like to give my friends a hard time about various things. Um, recently, I was supposed to play music with a friend, and he said, well, I've got a work um, Christmas party on the night we usually play, can we reschedule? And so I just gave him a hard time, and he thought I was being serious. And he said, are you upset that um, I'm going to a Christmas party that I can't reschedule rather than rescheduling the musical playing session that we had, which we can easily reschedule? And I wrote back, and I, I said, I just enjoy pretending that I'm petty sometimes. So we can all have little quirks in our personality. I remember when I first uh, finished the book Kriya Yoga Vichara, Kriya Yoga Vichara, um, I have a section there on, on gurus, on gurus and initiation. And one of the paragraphs in there talks about how you're going to find that your, your teacher is going to have quirks and idiosyncrasies just like everybody else. <laughs> and I let Mr. Davis read that or I sent him a copy, and then the next time I saw him, he had the book on his table in between us, and we talked for maybe about 45 minutes or so, and then he tapped the book and he said, so what are these quirks and idiosyncrasies that you're talking about here? <laughs> and I paused for a moment because um, I've always had great respect for Mr. Davis, and um, very rarely did I question him in certain things. Uh, but I laughed and I said, are you sure you want me to tell you? And he said, yes. So I told him what I thought the quirks and idiosyncrasies were. And mainly those just simply revolved around the fact that um, he, he was in his 80s at the time and I was 40 some years younger than him. And a lot of his approach to life had an emphasis of someone being born in the 1930s, raised in the Midwest. That's all. <laughs> but that's just part, that was part of the personality he was playing. Just like everyone is going to have a personality, the trouble is when we overly identify with it. 
And usually when we are hyper possessive or have a strong emphasis towards various possessions, um, then we lose our peace. We lose our bliss. And this reminds me of when I first started studying other, other Gita commentaries. Uh, Mr. Davis let me borrow a text he had that was a commentary by Lahiri Mahasaya. And I was really struck by how Lahiri Mahasaya shared uh, his thoughts on the Gita. They weren't as direct as you might find in, say, Mr. Davis's work. But one phrase in particular, I wrote it down. Lahiri Mahasaya said, Then, seeing very clearly that neither am I anything, nor is anything mine, Abiding in this kind of state, you will ceaselessly roam in Brahman, immersing mind within, meaning remaining stuck in the after-effects of Kriya. There is nothing at all other than me. This state will come. Now, to roam ceaselessly in Brahman, that's roaming in the infinite, roaming in infinite space. Many people will call that self-realization, Christ consciousness, God consciousness. And this occurs by seeing very clearly that I or you, we don't, I'm nothing, nor is anything mine. I don't own anything, which speaks to that idea written of in the Yamas and Niyamas of uh, the Yoga Sutras of non-possessiveness. And when you remain stuck in the Paravashta of Kriya or the after effects of Kriya, that is the stillness. And it's said that when you can do that, there is nothing at all other than me. And in this commentary, uh, this is between Krishna and Arjuna. That's true for all commentaries. But when Krishna speaks, he's speaking of himself as pure supreme consciousness. And so when there's this statement that you will see there is nothing other than me, there is nothing other than supreme consciousness. And that is part of what you learn through the practice of Kriya Yoga. And by doing this consistently, repeatedly, this state will come. Now, this will occur while you practice your meditation techniques. You will practice a technique. You will abide in the after effects, tranquility of Kriya. And the more you do that, it's like bathing yourself or bleaching out something or putting something out in the sun to be purified. The more you do it, eventually you start to recognize, oh, all these things I thought were so important, they're not really me. I am not all these things that cause me worry and stress and strife. And that can happen in meditation, but we can also actively do that in our daily lives by simply recognizing, okay, is this really me? And that's a very important meditation technique that I, I enjoy and I have found to be useful um, on this path is meditating on contemplating is this really me? Is this, is, is, is this what I am? Particularly in times when maybe you have an anxiety or something stressing you out or something depressing you. Um, oftentimes we don't necessarily want to meditate then because we're overcome with grief or remorse or anxiety, which if you read the Bhagavad Gita, you'll see in the first chapter that happens to Arjuna. That's why he says, oh, I just can't do it. And he drops his bow which symbolizes dropping his meditation posture. And he slumps to the ground and doesn't carry on with his practice. But in those, in those circumstances, if you can have awareness, uh, enough awareness, you can actually do your meditation 
and you can hold within your consciousness, within your mind, within your heart, that feeling, whatever's causing you depression or anxiety or grief or stress, and you can look at it and you can contemplate, ask with sincerity, is this me? Is this what I am? And if you can do that intently enough, waiting for the answer to come, you will catch little glimpses that kind of point out, no, that's not you at all. You are the, the stillness. You are the witness. You are the awareness. You are the consciousness in which this rises and falls. So by practicing meditation that gives us a glimpse of that is useful. By living in such a way that we are not bound to anything also gives us that experience. Um, if we are in times of trouble or difficulty, that doesn't mean we don't meditate or we don't continue on our path because those things happen to everyone, no matter what's going on, no matter who you think you are, enlightened or otherwise. But it can be utilized as a furtherance of your practice by looking at it and contemplating, is this me? Is what I'm feeling right now really what I am? And if you can do that with sincerity, that is also a type of contemplative kriya, which will free you from it. Uh, one thing I learned while my um, my late wife, Melissa, was on her way uh, into the next realm, that was a very difficult time period, uh, emotionally, mentally, physically, for many reasons. And there were quite a few times of being overwhelmed by various, again, emotions or thoughts or concerns or sensations. And when those came up, I forced myself to hold those feelings, to hold that despair, to hold that whatever it could be in my heart and accept it and ask, what is this gift that I'm being given? What is this gift that I'm being given? And I found repeatedly, every single time I did it, that no matter how horrible of an internal state I found myself in related to what I was witnessing and what seemed to be happening, anytime I could bring my awareness to that kind of contemplative practice, it always resulted in a sense of peace and understanding. Not one that could be necessarily um, described in regards to how it worked or what the effect was, but the experience of it was profound. And so those of you who are practicing Kriya Yoga, don't worry about whether your life is perfect or everything's lining up exactly the way you think it is. Even in the difficult times, if you can contemplate if that difficulty really is you or is a defining factor of who you are, that can be a very useful Kriya. And of course, in time, you eventually learn to let go of that and not focus so heavily on those types of situations because the more you glimpse what you really are, it just becomes secondhand knowledge. It's just you know what you are and you know what you need to do to be clear inside and to continue this life burning out your karmas within this particular body that you're functioning through. So Kriya Yoga ultimately is a profound science. And we've barely scratched the surface of what it can mean to practice Kriya Yoga. To summarize, anything that you do to take care of your body, your mind, and your spirit, such that you are able to meditate well, and to go deeply into exploring what is your relationship with God, the Christ consciousness, the infinite, the supreme, anything you do which gives you the capacity to 
focus in that way is a kriya, anything you do. Um, People often don't understand that sometimes they have to change their relationships because their relationships aren't supportive of their practice. It doesn't mean that you don't love and appreciate the people that maybe you're spending time with. It just means that uh, you might need to adjust the amount of time you spend with someone such that you can be successful on your chosen path. A very simple example, imagine that you want to be a jazz musician, yet you're surrounded by country musicians. Okay, well, you can try to convert the five country musicians you know into learning to play jazz, but they don't really have a passion for it, but you do. So if you have a passion for playing jazz and you want to live the jazz life musically, you have to find other people who will who either know about it, will support you in it, or play along with you. And you might need to occasionally go play with your country friends. Um, but the same is true with our spirituality. We tend to need to find individuals, if we can, it's not always easy, who will be able to support us in our work. Most of the time, though, what we need to do is be okay on our own alone, because this is a solitary path, which is one of the reasons I don't particularly recommend getting involved in organizations or meditation groups, um, because it tends to get people more focused on the organization and the personalities that one has within that organization rather than doing the deep, profound work. So being a silent monk on one's own, letting go of attachment to all the people you think you need in your life from a Kriya Yogi perspective, it could be better. So Kriya Yoga encompasses all aspects of our life. Um, the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, it's a rich text of of what it means to practice Kriya Yoga. It's got the philosophy, it's got um, lifestyle, it's got emphasis towards various types of techniques. These are useful. Even the chapter, which isn't my favorite chapter in the Yoga Sutras on uh, the cities or the soul powers, uh, there is a, well, my favorite soul power in there is where it states that by contemplation or focus on friendship, spiritual strength or spiritual integrity develops. That's the best one in there, from my perspective, by contemplating friendship. And we can interpret this as friendship related to just being friendly to people, and that's good. You should be friendly to people. Don't let them walk all over you, so you need to defend yourself in times that that's necessary, but developing a sense of friendliness with oneself, with the universe, with others. But that also comes down to friendliness with the moment. Not every moment is going to be lovely. Sometimes they're going to be outright brutal and disheartening, but we need to find a way, or we do eventually find a way to develop friendship even with that present moment. And then you develop spiritual integrity or spiritual strength. The Bhagavad Gita, wonderful text. Um, it tells you how one experiences the spiritual path. Meditation, learning to meditate well. All these things go together to make one a successful Kriya Yogi. And one final thought I will give on this is that you really need to take it seriously. You really need to take it seriously. Meaning, when the Gita says that one learns to be untroubled amidst pleasure or pain, blame or praise, gain or loss, 
if you are really practicing Kriya Yoga, you need to take that seriously. Meaning you need to contemplate how can that be possible? Because you might not know how it's possible right now. You might not know how it's possible right now. But through contemplating it, you start to bring into your awareness the potential for understanding it and living it. The true Kriya Yogi will express, either internally or externally, uh, the qualities and characteristics described in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali and the Bhagavad Gita. So if you want to walk the Kriya Yoga path, take those things seriously. Pay attention to what you need to work on, and then work on it. Learn to surrender your self-consciousness or your sense of egoism for an identification with a larger consciousness. Trust in a intelligence which is greater than you. Learn to practice concentration. Learn to regulate sensory and mental impulses. Many, many individuals act like great spiritual masters are able to regulate sensory and mental impulses just because they're great spiritual masters. But they learned to do that through practice. They learned to do that through practice. So if your goal is to be a Kriya master, you need to figure out some way to regulate your sensory and mental impulses. Essentially what you're learning to do is to get a hold of yourself to do your duty in this world as you know it and not get too caught up in whether you feel like doing it, whether you're happy, whether you're sad, whether it's going well, whether it's going poorly, you continue to walk forward. Mr. Davis many times, many times told me that as a Kriya Yoga teacher, that I am to do this as spiritual service, as karma yoga. I am not to be concerned he said, Ryan, don't be concerned about um, whether people actually listen to what you say, follow through with what you teach them. Don't be concerned about if the people that you work with are still there 10, 15, 20 years from now. He says, he told me, your role is to teach as clearly as possible and then let them do what they need to do. And those who are inspired, those who are dedicated to the process, they will naturally continue and that you would, ser you would serve as a support for them as they worked through whatever it is they needed to work through in their Kriya Yoga process. But again and again, he would say, this is karma yoga. You do it because it is your duty to do it. So your Kriya Yoga is also karma yoga. Remember in the very beginning of this discussion, Kriya and karma come from the same root the same Sanskrit root. And the reason you are practicing Kriya Yoga is as karma yoga, as duty, as an individualized expression of the infinite in this world. For some reason, that giant intelligence, that infinite intelligence wants you to practice. You may not necessarily know exactly why, your personality at least, but that is not for you to know on a mental level. As you practice Kriya Yoga, as you become clearer inside, it will then become more obvious why you continue meditating, why you continue following the Kriya Yoga lifestyle, why you continue to practice the Yamas and Niyamas, why, you, why do you continue to study the Yoga Sutras and the Bhagavad Gita. In time, that becomes more and more evident 
on a deeper level, which is not necessarily expressive in words or from uh, a mental state or a mental place or the place of the mind. So you must continue as karma yoga. You can learn more about what Kriya Yoga is about um, by doing the work. That will unlock it for you. And then use your resources, your books, your lectures, your seminars, the teachers that are available to you to help keep you focused on what is important and keep your mind focused on what is important throughout the entirety of your life. And then whether or not you experience profound states of samadhi or oneness while you are alive, you can be assured you're probably going to experience it once the body falls away. I would even go so far as to say that that is uh, a given for 99.8% of all people who sincerely practice meditation and walk a spiritual path. So these are some insights about what it may mean to practice Kriya Yoga and what Kriya Yoga actually is. This episode of the Kriya Yoga podcast was made possible by donations from Kriya Yoga Apprenticeship Students and supporters of our Patreon community at www.patreon.com forward slash Kriya Yoga.